got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 118 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I've got a great episode for you. Our main headline was something to celebrate for some, and for others, it was something that gave hope. For others, I'm sure it brought a bit of sadness, too. For today's episode, we're going to go back in time 77 years to May 8, 1945. I'm taking our main headline from the Frederick Leader out of Frederick, Oklahoma. It simply says, Victory. Now, that headline might have only been one word long, but it meant many more words for millions of people around the globe, especially in Europe. May 8, 1945 was VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day. I chose this headline from this newspaper because it was more than just seven bold letters. Each letter of the word, victory, is huge and filled with pictures. It's kind of hard to tell exactly what each picture is since it's an old newspaper and it's in black and white, but I do recognize a flag and people excitedly waving and what I think might be military vehicles. I'm not positive on that last part. On May 8th, there were ceasefires in Oslo and Copenhagen and the Channel Islands and Latvia, of course. Documents were signed in Berlin marking the official surrender of the German forces. In what was known as Czechoslovakia at the time, German soldiers began to flee in hopes that they wouldn't be captured and taken to prison by the Soviets. But it didn't work for many of them, and about two million German soldiers were taken prisoner by the Soviets. And since the fighting between the Germans and Soviets continued on into the 9th, and since the Soviet time zone was different and it was already the 9th at the time of the official surrender anyway, The victory is celebrated on a different day in places like Moscow. Anyway, the end of the war in Europe came little more than a week after Adolf Hitler committed suicide, which came two days after Benito Mussolini was executed in Italy, and then hung by his feet while on public display. And with the end of the war in Europe, 13,000 British prisoners of war were released and returned to Great Britain, to the joy of their families and friends, I'm sure. But it was also a sad day for the thousands upon thousands of families who knew their loved ones wouldn't be coming home. More than a million people went out into the streets in the United Kingdom to cheer and celebrate the victory. King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, along with their daughters and Winston Churchill, went out on the balcony of Buckingham Palace to wave at the crowd. In the United States, May 8, 1945, just happened to be President Harry Truman's birthday. He turned 61 that year and couldn't have received a better birthday present than to know that the horrible, awful war was finally starting to wind down. But he, as well as the rest of the country, knew that the victory in Europe was only part of the problem, and they still needed to have a victory in Japan. But that wouldn't come for a few more months. Our newspaper of the day quoted President Truman saying, This is a solemn but a glorious hour. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of reason fly over all Europe. Our rejoicing is sobered and subdued by a supreme consciousness of the terrible price we have paid to rid the world of Hitler and his evil band. 
Let us not forget, my fellow Americans, the sorrow and heartbreak which today abide in the homes of so many of our neighbors, neighbors whose most priceless possession has been rendered as a sacrifice to redeem our liberty. We can repay the debt which we owe to our God, to our dead, and to our children only by work, by ceaseless devotion to the responsibilities which lie ahead of us. If I could give you a single watchword for the coming months, that word is work, work, work. Now, as always, I could go on and on about the details leading up to the end of the war in Europe and tell you exactly who did what and where and when, but that's not what this podcast is about. As always, this podcast is meant to tell you the stories that you've forgotten or never knew that coincide with some of history's greatest moments. So, I'm going to open some more newspapers and tell you what else was going on the day millions of people celebrated the end of a horrible war. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline and article from the May 8, 1945 edition of the Seattle Star out of Washington State. This headline says, Slaying Trial Set for June 4th. Yes, it's another additional history story about a murder. But what can I say? Newspapers made their money by reporting the gruesome details of events, and not by reporting the nice, everyday stuff. This article is about the trial for the man believed to have killed five-year-old Irma McGow a few months earlier. Irma McGow was born in Caldwell, Idaho, a town in northern Idaho, in February of 1940. She was the daughter of James and Beulah McGow. Some of the sources I saw about this case list the victim's name as Irene rather than Irma, and it says her family history was complicated. And by complicated, it means situations that were out of the ordinary for the 1940s. Those same complicated situations probably wouldn't draw any attention today. Irma's mother explained everything to the reporters and said that although newspapers listed her name as Mrs. McGow, that wasn't actually the case. Her last name was technically Crawford. You see, she had married a man named William Crawford, and with him, she had two daughters. 10-year-old Vera, and 8-year-old Vivian. They were Irma's half-sisters. Then Beulah and William started having trouble in their marriage, and they separated. But I don't think they actually got divorced. That's when Beulah met James McGow and started a relationship with him. Irma was born not long later. Beulah insisted it was a loving relationship, even though they weren't married. And that couple was together for about three years. But for whatever reason, James and Beulah broke up, and Beulah went back to Portland, Oregon, and got back together with her actual husband, William Crawford. Then, that couple had another baby together, Billy. Except, while Beulah was with James McGow, she started calling herself Mrs. McGow. And when she returned to her actual husband and had another baby with him, she still continued to call herself Mrs. McGow because she didn't want to complicate paperwork. Anyway, as you can imagine, Beulah and William's relationship still wasn't the strongest, and once again, they broke up and went their separate ways. And Beulah left with, you guessed it, James McGow, taking her four children with her, even though only one of the children actually belonged to James. 
The couple traveled to Washington State, and Beulah said that her actual husband had no idea where they were. She also said that James was only helping them to get away from a troubling situation, and their relationship was purely platonic, and the only thing between them was friendship. And she said that even though Irma wasn't William's daughter, he loved her as if she was his. The McGow family had only been in Seattle for about three weeks when little Irma was brutally murdered. James had gotten a job working at one of the shipyards there, and the family was living out of a local hotel. At least, they were for about a week. Then they were evicted and had to move out to some temporary rooms donated by the St. Vincent de Paul Charity Organization. Sadly, that was where everything happened. One day, Irma's two older sisters, Vera and Vivian, walked to a nearby grocery store on an errand for their mother. Irma decided she wanted to go and meet them on their way back. So she, quote, danced her way out of the apartment. Beulah expected her three daughters to return together, but it was only Vera and Vivian who came back. Five-year-old Irma had never caught up to them. Beulah was worried right away, and a massive search got underway for the little girl. They didn't know if she'd gotten lost, or if she'd gotten sidetracked and went somewhere else, or, heaven forbid, if someone took her. The search for Irma continued on into the next day, with more and more people joining. Then, 20 hours after she went missing, little Irma's body was found. She had been brutally raped and abused and suffocated. The murderer then hid her body under blankets and carpets inside a donation bin at the St. Vincent de Paul. All the time her family had been searching for her, they had no idea she was so close to where they were staying. It didn't take long for the police to name a suspect, though. Almost immediately upon finding Irma, they announced that they were looking for 33-year-old Joe Bill, an Alaska native who was seen quite often hanging around St. Vincent de Paul and getting food in their soup kitchen. And Irma's older sister said that he had tried to entice them with ice cream earlier. Joe had previously been convicted of violent crimes, and it made sense that the man who suddenly couldn't be found might just be the perpetrator. Joe Bill's wife attended the mass held for Irma McGow and then released a statement that she wanted the newspapers to print. She said, Joe, today I stood in church and saw the mass for this five-year-old girl. Over the casket was a figure of Christ, with outstretched arms, and he seemed to be asking that you clear yourself. I do not think that you are guilty, neither do my daughters. The state will provide you with a good lawyer who will help you. No one will try to railroad you. The prosecutor just wants to find out the truth. And if you are innocent, you will be freed. Surrender, Joe. It is the wise thing to do. The search for Joe Bill was probably bigger than the search for Irma. The Coast Guard was called in to help with the search of the port and every building around it. At least a thousand armed members of the port security force showed up. But Joe Bill's eventual capture a few days later wasn't quite as dramatic of a scene as you would expect. Joe suddenly showed up at a place where he used to work, and the office manager there, Martha Cotton, asked if he was turning himself in and if he'd like her to call the police. He said yes, and the cops arrested him just minutes later. He had been hiding under an overturned boat for days, without any food, and I think it was ultimately starvation that made him turn himself in. Joe confessed to the murder and said that he'd been drunk at the time and wasn't in his right mind. He said he deserved whatever punishment he would get, 
and if he'd had a knife when he was in hiding, he would have killed himself and gotten it over with. Well, Joe's trial was in June of 1945, and he was found guilty and sentenced to death. Since the judicial system moved a lot quicker back in the 1940s than it does now, Joe's death came fairly quickly, and he was hung just a few months later on September 7th. The story ends there, but I would rather end on a happy note. So, when news of the murder reached news outlets, the community offered their sympathy and support of the McGow Crawford family. One man, Arthur Therry, who worked as an auto mechanic, told the family they could come stay in his five-bedroom home for as long as they needed since they had nowhere else to go. He said, quote, There's plenty of room there with trees and plenty of ground for the children to play on, a good neighborhood. I'm glad to be able to do something for these suffering folks, struck by a tragedy for which they are blameless. I think the world needs a lot more people like Arthur and a lot fewer people like Joe. Okay, for my second additional history story of the day, I'm actually kind of, sort of, maybe going to break one of my own rules and talk some more about the main subject of the day. Kind of. As you can probably imagine, the stories that were published on May 8th, 1945, all over the country and all over the world, had a common theme. The end of the war. It wasn't just an article here and there on the front page, but rather newspapers full of war articles. Every article. One such article was printed in the Santa Fe, New Mexican, out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. The headline says, Nazis served up corpses on short order in Buchenwald. This article was not an easy read. Yes, it's about one of the Nazi concentration camps, Buchenwald, and yes, it talks about the many atrocities and horrors and deaths that took place there. I've visited Germany a couple of times, but I've only had the opportunity to visit one concentration camp in Munich, and it was a very sobering experience. In April of 1945, the United States Army was getting closer and closer to the Buchenwald camp. The Germans, hoping to stop any attempts of the U.S. Army freeing the prisoners, if it came to that, decided to start moving the prisoners and evacuating them to a different location. At that time, there were 28,000 prisoners in the camp. Many of those prisoners died from starvation and exhaustion. They were just too far gone to attempt a march to evacuation. Then, on April 11th, the starved and dying prisoners that were left decided to give it their all, and together they stormed the watchtowers at Buchenwald and managed to take control of the prison just hours before the United States Armed Forces marched in. Now, I'm going to take a complete sidestep from Buchenwald for just a second to make note of another thing that was going on at the time, since the whole point of this podcast is to link historical moments together. On April 12th, the day after Buchenwald was freed, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who had just started serving his fourth term as president, suddenly collapsed and died. That means that President Roosevelt died less than a month before the war officially ended, and although Truman was there at the end, he'd only held the office for a few weeks. Okay, back to Buchenwald. The United States military was able to help liberate the Buchenwald concentration camp about a month before the official end of the war in Europe. 
And after they'd gone in and inspected everything and went over the records and talked to the prisoners that still remained when it was freed, the reality of what went on there was starting to come to light, and reports were making it into the newspapers back in the U.S. Buchenwald was one of the biggest concentration camps in Germany, and it was opened in 1937, years before the United States even entered the World War. It was just a little bit northwest of the town of Weimar, which is in east-central Germany. The camp was surrounded by fences covered in barbed wire that were also electrified, multiple watchtowers, and guards armed with machine guns. Escape wasn't an option, and very few people wanted to even attempt it because of what was called the bunker. This is where prisoners who stepped out of line or disobeyed commands were sent to be tortured, and sometimes the torture was so severe that the prisoners died while at the bunker. The prison housed barracks, a kitchen, a laundry, workshops, warehouses, a train station, and a crematorium. It could reduce 400 bodies to ash every single day. Unlike some of the other concentration camps set up during World War II, Buchenwald was only a prison for men, and many of the prisoners, at least in the very beginning, were political prisoners. If you didn't agree with the Nazi regime, or if you tried to fight against it, you stood a good chance of getting sent there. Then, in 1938, 10,000 Jewish prisoners were sent there. The treatment of the Jewish prisoners was so bad that 250 of them died just from the abuse they suffered through when they were arrested and taken to the camp. When the camp was liberated, only about 20,000 prisoners remained of the 28,000 that started the month before. Some were from France, some were from Poland, some were from Hungary and Russia, and some were from Czechoslovakia, etc., etc., etc. Remember how I mentioned that all the prisoners in Buchenwald were male? Well, of those remaining prisoners, about a thousand of them were young boys under the age of 14. I can't even imagine locking up and treating children like that. In the article out of New Mexico that our headline came from, it says that in the months leading up to the liberation, Around 200 prisoners were dying every single day. Just in the month of February, 5,700 prisoners died in Buchenwald. 5,900 died in March. And in the first 10 days of April, right before they were liberated, 3,000 had already died. Some died from torture. Some died from typhus. Some died from overwork. Some died of starvation. And some were purposely put to death. One of the horrible things I remember from when I visited Dachau was the sleeping conditions, and they weren't any better in Buchenwald. The article describes them as triple-stacked shelves that were roughly 12 feet by 12 feet. Each shelf was about 2 feet apart from each other, and they would pack 16 men onto each of those shelves. U.S. military regulations say each person needs around 600 cubic feet of personal space. This space each man got to himself in Buchenwald came out to be just 35 cubic feet. The blankets that the prisoners had to sleep with were full of holes and worn out, not to mention that there were fewer blankets than there were prisoners, and they either had a share or do without. And did I mention that these buildings weren't heated? Yeah, it was absolutely horrible, miserable conditions. Now, you might be surprised to know that there was a hospital in the Buchenwald concentration camp and prisoners were allowed to go there if they were sick, except there weren't any medicines available, 
and the space was so crowded from those suffering through typhus and tuberculosis that they couldn't even fully stretch out their legs, and they had to lie on the ground shoulder to shoulder with their fellow prisoners. I think it was more of a place for people to go to die rather than to heal. And then came the part I think is one of the most horrible parts of the camp. This was also done at Dachau and other concentration camps, and I was truly horrified by it when I first learned about it, and I'm still horrified by it now. With all of those prisoners at their disposal, the Nazis determined that they would make wonderful guinea pigs. Buchenwald had an entire building at the camp dedicated to medical experimentations. The Nazis would bring in their scientists and their doctors and let them fulfill their ideas and theories by experimenting on the prisoners. In Buchenwald, they especially loved trying out toxins and antitoxins on those that were unlucky enough to get sent to that building. Basically, they were testing out vaccines and treatments for diseases like typhus and cholera and diphtheria. Some of the men in prison were there because they were gay, and experiments were done on them where artificial glands were implanted to try to cure their homosexuality. The article continues on with many more details on how the prisoners were treated. But out of the respect of those who lost their lives, I'm choosing to leave out some of the worst details. In all, tens of thousands of men lost their lives in Buchenwald, and many thousands more experienced horrible things there. And I think it's worth talking about and remembering that these things really did happen. Okay, for the third additional history story of the day, I'm going to tell another war-related story. But this one is a little bit crazy, and not quite as horrendous as the last story. When I say that pretty much all of the newspaper articles on May 8, 1945, had something to do with the war and or VE Day, I am not exaggerating. Page after page after page was filled with stories of battles and reactions, and parents finding out that their children wouldn't be returning right as the rest of the country was rejoicing, missing their own homecomings by just days. This article was printed in the Greenwood Commonwealth out of Greenwood, Mississippi. The headline says, G.I. reported dead, wife remarries. This story is about a difficult decision that Mrs. Helen Goad had to make. She and her husband, Harold Goad, had met while living in Oregon and fallen in love. They dated for three years and then got married. But, like many young marriages of the 1940s, the couple would soon have to say goodbye because Harold was called up to go overseas. He was going to be serving in the Pacific Theater. As the pilot of a B-24 bomber, Harold's job in the military was very dangerous, and his return was uncertain. And the couple hoped that their goodbye on January 1st, 1943 wouldn't be their last. But, the next October, Helen Goad got the news no military wife ever wanted to get. Harold had been killed in action in Burma. His plane had crash-landed in flames, and some of the servicemen who served in Harold's squadron wrote to Helen and told her about the incident. They said that there were three men on board when the plane got shot down, and they saw three parachutes deploy and leave the plane. But sadly, one of the parachutes was on fire as it descended, and the other two men were killed by machine guns on the ground. The War Department couldn't produce a body of Harold Goad, so Helen hung on to hope that even though they said he was dead, 
maybe there was still a chance he somehow would live. But after 12 months went by, the government officially declared Harold as dead. And when some of her husband's squadron went home on leave, Helen decided to go to Florida to meet and visit with him. It was while she was in Florida that she met Robert McDowell. He comforted her in her time of sorrow. And so, 18 months after she found out that her husband would not be returning from the war, she made the decision to marry Robert. And then it was time for Helen's second husband to go to war. And on April 17th, he left, also headed to the Pacific Theater, just like her first husband. Everything was going great until Helen got the most unexpected news anyone could ever get. The news was so unexpected that she didn't believe it at first. The message said that her husband, her first husband, had been found alive and had been a prisoner of war all that time over in Burma and was currently in a hospital in Calcutta, India. Yep, Harold wasn't dead. And suddenly, Helen found herself married to two different men. As if her life hadn't already been torn apart, the poor woman had to decide which husband she was going to stay with. And as Harold put it, knowing his wife had married someone else was harder than anything he had to endure during 18 months as a POW. So, what decision do you think Helen made? Well, she decided to have her marriage to Robert McDowell annulled. She told the newspapers that she hoped he would understand, although since he was serving overseas, she hadn't been able to get a message to him to even tell him what was going on. Then she excitedly greeted her first husband, Harold, when he returned home a month later. Harold eventually became a pilot for Eastern Airlines, and he and Helen had two sons together. But Harold died at the age of 46, that time for real. Helen lived for another 35 years. Let's hope that Robert McDowell eventually found out the truth before he came home to a rude awakening, just like Harold. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Atlanta Constitution out of Georgia. This ad, found on page two, gives a hint for a Mother's Day gift. It suggests that you buy her hot, fresh roasted planters peanuts. There were two store locations in the area, and you could go in and watch the nuts get roasted right before your eyes. Three pounds of nuts only cost 75 cents. Friends, thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned something you didn't know before. Join me over in the Additional History Headlines You Probably Miss Facebook group, and I'll share a page of newspaper from the Union City Times-Gazette out of Union City, Indiana. The page shares different highlights from World War II that were printed on May 8, 1945. It's interesting to look through. Then join me on Thursday for a mini-episode about a huge project in the 1990s that maybe didn't go quite as planned. Or maybe it did. And, of course, I'll be back again on Monday with another full-size episode where I'll take you way back in time. Talk to you later.